Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and as always, it's a real honor and pleasure to have you here with me today. Okay, as you might hear, my voice is a little bit groggy. It's quite early where I am in Maine right now. It's about 5.30 a.m. I woke up early, um, restless, just spinning, my head spinning about matters of the world, um, not least of which is the Ukraine war, um, my utter kind of stupefaction and tongue-tied sense from witnessing the uh, spectacle at the Oscars. I'll say no more about that for now. Anyway, just a lot of agitation. And, um, and, I, and because of all that, I wasn't able to get to producing the podcast on Monday as I normally do. So it's up early Tuesday to get the show out. And um, I'll just say that this, this is a talk I gave last week where I'm really uh, kind of interrupting my normal flow of going through the series where I've been exploring a, a compassionate approach to mindfulness that uh, is a development or an expansion of the very loved and commonly used acronym RAIN. Um, I'll be coming back to that theme, that series soon, but this is a an, kind of an adjunct or complementary talk that I gave about uh, what real compassion is and how uh, I think emotional empathy, that is feeling emotionally what another person feels or another group feels, how emotional empathy can actually, in, in spite of it feeling sounding like a good thing, emotional empathy can be a problematic thing. And I make the case that rather than emotional empathy, we want to be developing cognitive empathy. And then from there, I try to show or indicate or intone how our practice, um, that is the practice of relaxing and, and opening to the way things are and what that reveals about the nature of consciousness, I, I try to show how that practice supports the development of um, this more universal kind of compassion. So uh, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And uh, two quick announcements. One is if you missed my interview that I just published last week with uh, Greg Thomas, please go back. That's episode 170. Greg and I had a very interesting conversation about uh, race, jazz, and culture. And he brings just a wealth of perspective and knowledge to that conversation. And I learned a tremendous amount. In fact, there are going to be some talks coming forward or, or in, in a few weeks that um, really draw from some of the reflections that Greg was giving. So do check that out. That was last week's talk with Greg Thomas. And uh, the other thing is that starting in May, running from May to June, I will be doing the next online yin yoga teacher training module. This module will focus on yin yoga and the practice of compassion, or it's a meditative module emphasizing the compassion side of, of, of practice. Um, so that, that, that uh, two-month, eight-week training is called The Heart of Compassion, Yin Yoga and Meditation. If you're a teacher, if you're uh, in the school that Terry and I run, this might be of interest to you. So check it out. It's in the show notes. And now, without further ado, uh, here is today's talk, Questioning Compassion. Okay, so welcome everybody. Um, 
as I uh, I recorded the the intro for one of the episodes of last week's talk this morning, and I was mentioning in the intro how, in some ways, frozen I'm feeling uh, as in response or in light of kind of the, the magnitude of what's uh, rippling and and the shock waves that are rippling through the world. And in preparation uh, for for tonight, I was thinking back through an interview I had with a, a friend of mine um, who's the, the jazz pianist who uh, shared his music with me for my podcast. His name is Aaron Goldberg, um, highly accomplished jazz pianist. And in that interview, Aaron said, when I asked him, what's going on in your mind when you're playing when you're when you're improvising on the jazz set what's going through your mind and he tried to capture it for me he said when i'm playing everything i play is a response to everything i've already played and what's being played by everybody else in the group simultaneously so I'm playing what my what I'm playing is a response to everything that's being played by the group and everything, and it's a response to everything else I've already played. And what he didn't say, but I know as a kind of a, a, a jazz fan, what he's playing is also informed by the history of the art form, by the history of the tradition. It's rooted in, in the tradition. And I take, I take personally take a lot of kind of ins- inspiration from artists like like that um and in some ways I'm, I'm sharing this because i think it, it it informs how i think about what i show up here with what i what i offer in in our group sessions um in a sense i'm trying to respond to everything i've already said in other talks i'm trying to respond to our discussions and the themes that are coming up and that are alive in our discussions I'm trying, I'm cognizant of a new war in the world that's a very inflamed situation on top of a couple of years of a pandemic worldwide, that's on top of serious environmental concerns, that's on top of social justice issues, particularly you know, where I'm from in the United States. And there's just late, as I said in the, in the intro of my, my podcast, there's just layers and layers of very difficult, problematic, and scary conditions that affect everybody in, in, in different and unique ways. And so in trying to hold all that you know, in, a, in a way... It, the the task of speaking and, and and looking upon these conditions through the lens of the Dharma can at times feel incredibly onerous and 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 overwhelming. How can I capture something from the Dharma that speaks in a way to the heart of what we're all experiencing, what or what in, you individually are experiencing? So tonight's talk, uh, the way I might describe it is I'm going to share with you some reflections that I've been thinking about, themes, topics that I've been chewing on and sitting with 
and listening to and evaluating. And I share these reflections very much in the spirit of questions. And I don't pretend to have answers to all these questions, but I'm hoping that the questions that I raise and some of the reflections that I share will, will, will stimulate your own investigation, your own contemplation, your own heart's um, exploration. And in some ways, I hope that these reflections prove fruitful for you, that they open you to some considerations and, and, and um, ways of coming to be with yourself and your experience. So one of the things that has been rattling around in my mind, um, it comes and goes, I should say, but something about the, the war in, the U, in Ukraine has, has kind of um, brought it back to my attention, which is a passage or a, a quote that's attributed to Mother Teresa that I came across over 15 years ago in a book on decision-making. The book was called How We Decide, and it was looking at um, different kinds of decision-making contexts that we find ourselves in, and then how um, there's, like, there's different ways that we may want to think about or experience making decisions. Like, do we want to trust our gut? Do we want to think, step back and calculate rationally? Or do we want to rely on more of a creative ins insight or innovative, so innovative solution? But at one point in that book, the author was speaking about how um, emotions or lack of emotion can guide our response to tragedy. And the quote from Mother Teresa that he, the author used was here, where she says, quote, if I look at the mass... I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. If I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. And when I first came across that, I, I interpreted it as kind of the key to compassionate humanitarian engagement how do we mobilize our energy to be of use to others and the, the teaching that mother Teresa seems to be giving is that if we kind of let our our awareness or let our gaze just settle on the mass the hundreds the thousands the several thousands but hundreds of thousands we might be paralyzed for a variety of different reasons, and we don't act. But when we encounter a specific individual that we connect with, we're, we're animated to act. So I thought, I thought she was describing kind of the key to humanitarian aid or key to humanitarian assistance. And then years went by after I encountered that, that book. Um, and I think it was maybe four or five years ago, I um, came across the work of a psychologist at Yale named Paul Bloom, 
who he was, he, you know, he, he gets onto the, the podcast circuit and, uh, one of my friends, Bob Wright, who I mentioned frequently had him on a few times to discuss his different books, but the book that is relevant to this quotation from mother Teresa was Paul Bloom's book. If you don't know it, this is going to be a jarring title, I think for some of you, but the title was against empathy against empathy. And in a nutshell, his argument around why empathy is not really a reliable, you know, a reliable way of seeing a situation because it's very biased. <clears throat> it's an emotion when you, then he's speaking about not cognitive empathy, which I've been speaking about in the last few weeks, but emotional empathy, where you feel what the other person is feeling. So if, if you see something that's a, a person in serious anguish and you feel a gut-wrenching pain in your stomach, that's emotional empathy. And the why, reason why some of you may be uncomfortable at the moment, because in pop psychology, in pop culture, the last thing you want to be accused of is not being empathetic. <laughs> that, would, that would not be what I would, I would not want to be charged by somebody who's like, you're, you have no empathy. You're a sociopath. So let me, I want to share with you a little bit of a, an interview that I um, picked up with Paul Bloom. Um, this, this one appeared in Vox. And he says, my beef with empathy, and remember, he means emotional empathy. My beef with emotional empathy in particular, is with regard to its role in decision-making. He says, empathy's design failings have to do with the fact that it acts like a spotlight. Emotional empathy acts like a spotlight. It zooms in on something. It zooms you in on something. But spotlights, as he says, spotlights only illuminate where you point them at. <clears throat> And for that reason, empathy is biased. And then he goes on to explain that. Uh, Paul is white and the interviewer was also white. So that just that's the context. Paul says, I'm likely to feel empathy towards you, a white guy like me, <clears throat> but somebody who is repulsive or frightening, I don't feel empathy for, emotional empathy. I actually feel a lot less empathy for people who aren't in my culture, who don't share my skin color, who don't share my skin color, who don't share my language. He says, this is a terrible fact of human nature. And it operates at a subconscious level, but we know that it happens. He says, there's dozens, probably hundreds of laboratory experiments looking at empathy and they find that empathy is as biased as can be. The next paragraph relates to the Mother Teresa quote. And this is not an indictment against Mother Teresa, by the way. I'm just using that quote as a, as a, as a, as a launching pad into this discussion or into this questioning and exploration. But Paul Bloom in this next passage says, empathy zooms in on one, but it doesn't attend to the difference between one and a hundred or one and a thousand. It's because of empathy, we often care more about a single person 
This is the Mother Teresa. We care more about a single person than a hundred people or a thousand people. Or for white, we care more about an attractive white girl who went missing than we do a thousand starving children who don't look like we do or don't live where we do. So it might feel good, he says. It might feel good, but empathy often leads us to make stupid, in his words, and unethical decisions. So I, I, I've been aware of this issue. This, and, and part of the reason I'm aware of it, because when I speak and, and talk to my friend Bob Wright, he's, he's really emphatic that he feels the world needs more cognitive empathy. That more, if more people had cognitive empathy, the ability to perspective take and see how another person might be seeing the world from their side or from their lens, that that will decrease conflicts and escalations of conflict. But it still begs the question, and this is the question I want to raise, is, and I'll, I'll put it in my in first person from my perspective. How does my emotional affinity how does my personal emotional affinity sway? How does it sway me from seeing clearly and acting with compassion and wisdom? <clears throat> now, in case you want to go uh, try to cancel Paul Bloom for his book Against Empathy, you should know that he's very, very uh, fond, or he's a, he's a big proponent of the kind of compassion described in Buddhism. And so for, for that reason, I want to suggest, or I want to share with you some, some uh, a, a short passage from the Buddha himself that speaks to a universal dimension of kindness, a universal dimension of love, and a universal dimension of um, compassion. So this is this is from the Buddha's um, Metta Sutta. Metta is the Pali word for loving kindness. This is uh, the, the the early Sutta on Metta that the Buddha gave, and it's a translation by the uh, Thai forest community in in England. So the the, the monastics from the Amravati Sangha. What I'm going to read is this is the beginning of the second stanza. And just listen for the, well, I'll point it out after, but listen for the, the note of kind of emotional empathy that the Buddha mentions, and then how he opens that to a universal quality beyond emotional empathy. <laughs> Passage reads, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, 
outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. So I, I chose that part of the, uh, the sutta, partic- in particular for the line, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. That's probably one of the strongest bonds that natural selection has programmed for emotional empathy between mother and child. And, and the Buddha uses that as a launching point or as a reference point for the quality of love to be radiated without bound. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings. And since we're here practicing meditation, in, in effect, and this is a non-denominational kind of sangha of practice, but as you know, I'm, I'm very influenced by early Buddhist teachings. And so the question for me arises, well, what facilitates that transformation? What facilitates that kind of awakening of the heart? And one key, one clue is the ability to hold emotion, to see emotions as emotions, but not to be transfixed or defined by emotion. I would say that's probably a, an early step in overcoming some of the biases that emotional empathy brings with it. And so, you know, in our practice, when in the last several weeks, um, I've been trying to offer a variety of different ways of looking into difficult parts of ourselves that, that bring up strong emotion and, and how to relate to those parts so that the emo- we can hold the emotion and not have it define our ability to see something or define the narrative that we take on something. And so there's a, in a, in a way, so far, I've been giving a little bit of a, a developmental programmatic approach of giving you some tools to play with and, and try out and um, see how that works. But tonight I want to suggest that there's a, um, there's another avenue, there's another doorway of access to this um, dimension of universal compassion. So emotional empathy would be, you know, if you were trying to relieve suffering for someone that you had a strong affinity for, that's an emotionally empathic kind of compassion. But the, the kind of compassion that the Buddha is describing is universal. It's not defined or, or determined by the individual's preferences or your particular likes and dislikes. It's a dimension of the heart that is um, unbound. So to try to hint at, and this is, this is where the language will always come up lacking, but to hint at how our practice might be 
gently carrying us into this broader opening, into this broader awakening. I want to come to that reflection vis-a-vis another personal anecdote or a short personal illustration. And that has to do with um, the fact that uh, Terry and I are involved in um, some website stuff, rebranding, and um, we're going to have to migrate in another month or so. I'll tell you more about that later. But um, we've been wanting to get a logo for the Sangha. And um, as you know, the name of the Sangha is River Bird, the River Bird Sangha. And I have a friend, uh, we both have a friend now uh, that uh, I met a couple of years ago who's in art school and really taking to, to art design. So we, we've sort of asked him and commissioned him to, to work on a logo for us that combines the imagery of a bird and the river. And last Tuesday, where we were going to, we had a meeting with him in the late morning. And a few hours before the meeting, for the first time this spring, we heard overhead that you know inimitable honking of Canada geese returning to the area. There was about six of them that flew over, and they kind of circled around the, the house for a while before they. Um, went off to our little pond because I think a pair of them will be nesting again this year. So that, that was sort of a, a natural, it, it felt a little bit like a, uh, you know, the, the arrival of spring, but it, 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 there was something that was being signaled by their arrival. And then uh, we had our meeting and we were very happy with the logo. And personally, I can't wait to show you when, when we see the, see it um, finally released. But after the meeting, uh, a couple of hours after the meeting, uh, my friend sent me a text with a picture of a book that he was reading on creativity and Taoism. And in the picture, he included a, 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 a short poem that uh, is attributed to a poet from 8th century China. And I, um, I've, I've tried to figure out who this poet was. Uh, for whatever reason, there isn't a citation of the author of the poem. So if you like the poem, I can't give you any more other than that name of that book and the author's name of that book. <clears throat> but the poem is what I'm building up to, which I think has a clue to this question of universal compassion. It's... You have to sort of sit with it for a moment. But let me read the poem. Just four lines. The wild geese fly across the long sky above. So you can feel the synchronicity. Earlier that morning, the geese arrived. The wild geese fly across the long sky above. Their image is reflected upon the chilly water below. The geese do not mean to cast their image on the water. Nor does the water mean to hold the image of the geese. That's the poem. The wild geese fly across the long sky above. Their image is reflected upon the chilly water below. The geese do not mean to cast their image on the water. 
nor does the water mean to hold the image of the geese. Terry and I have been speaking a lot about water most of the winter, and we're moving into the Chinese element of wood into spring. But you've heard us talk, and you've heard me at least use this many times, the idea that when the surface of water is still, it reflects like a mirror, whatever passes before it. But that reflection is not due to any intention of the water. It doesn't mean to reflect the geese, just as the geese don't mean to cast their image in the water. But in the stillness of the water, there's a perfect connection and reflection of what is. One, I'm going to raise this question and maybe I'll see if I can frame it as a question. Maybe. Maybe the question is one way we might look and consider looking at meditation when we listen deeply and we stay with it for time, we may have the experience that our consciousness, our sense of awareness of what is, that our consciousness is the still lens, just like the surface of the water, our consciousness is already a still lens of the universe reflecting the here and now. And there's a, in that stillness, there's a, it's hard to put into words, but there's a spontaneous connection and care. And it's not personal. This is the, I guess, one of the, maybe the point I'm trying to raise is that it can sound like you're like it's something you're doing to become still. But that's a little bit like saying walking up the mountain thing you're doing creates the peak of the mountain and the vision you get from the peak. Or as I said, I quoted a teacher of mine who said, when you drive to the Grand Canyon, there's nothing about the activity of getting to the Grand Canyon that has any bearing on what the Grand Canyon is like. So there's a way that our practice, we're, we're, we're quote unquote doing something, we're, we're supporting conditions. Kind of one of the best ways I think you can put it is our practice, our ongoing practice, our daily commitment to practice is a way of supporting conditions so that the stillness of awareness can emerge. And that stillness of awareness is able to hold the world of your experience impartially and not, it doesn't choose what it's reflecting. 
it spontaneously is connected. This is why sometimes in, in Zen, they refer to choiceless awareness. It's not, your, your awareness isn't choosing what it highlights and doesn't highlight. It just impartially reflects like a clear mirror, whatever is coming and going or what's arising and ceasing. And the paradox is, as I'm listening to myself, is that I know that can sound like, like a clear mirror that's impartially reflecting everything can sound cold. It can sound like the mirror of your attention is detached. But that's not at all the experience. It's, in fact, the experience of stillness is the exact opposite. That there's a, a sensitivity, an immediate sensitivity that arises when the bias of personality becomes quiescent to this grander stillness. So I'm going to pause the talk there and just leave you with, for now, leave you with the, the passage from the Buddha again. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded freed from hatred and ill will. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk, and as always, I hope the reflections stimulate you in a productive, explorative, and curious way, and I hope that those, those good qualities of investigation and, and exploration serve you on the path and serve you in terms of realizing the everyday sublime the sublime in the here and now, in the midst of it all. Um, and to that end, as I said, I'm up early because we're in the midst of it all and there's a lot going on. So from my heart, my practice to yours, I wish you all the best. I want you to stay safe, take good care of yourself, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. All the best.